I don't think this passage is saying that you shouldn't invite your relatives to tea. Now this might be good news, of course it depends on how you're getting on with your relatives. It's a strange reading and and we know that more than anything else that it comes from a completely different culture than the culture in which we live. We've got little fragments of a way of living that makes no real sense to us. And there's no easy transfer from what happened 2,000 years ago in a near Middle Eastern culture based around bartering and in small clan groups to our culture. And it gets confusing because it begins by Jesus, Luke, telling us that Jesus is telling us a parable, but it's not a parable at all. It's a set of instructions. And I think that the heart of the first bit is when you go to a wedding as a guest, it's not about you. Now, that should be fairly obvious. There's somebody dressed in a flowery white dress and a guy stuffed into a suit. That's who it's about. But it's an interesting system because, uh, situation because for the time of Jesus, a wedding, as it still is in some cultures in the world, is half an economic arrangement, half a political arrangement. And usually it would have been planned long, long before, maybe when both the groom, the groom and the bride were children. And it was about how two clan groups could come together, how they could share land. It might be important that they had land near or next to each other. And it came about after long negotiations. So why would you think, if you were a guest in this situation, that you knew how things worked? They'd taken years to get to this point of having this wedding. And it may not have always been easy going to get to a wedding. How would you know? how things go. The world turns out to be a lot more complex than you think it is. And it's a lot more complex than the conversations that we often have. In fact, any conversation or statement that begins with all you need to do is or it's really quite simple or all we need is or it's obvious that or anyone can see that Pretty much any conversation or statement that begins, whatever said after that is, is useless. Because it ain't. It ain't that simple. Whatever it is, whatever the thing is. You, you know Hardin's Law. It's a famous law put together by an, a, a, an anthropologist back in the 30s, I think, that says we can never do merely one thing. We can never do merely one thing. And it was in relation to for him, making first contact with groups that were not connected to his culture, i.e. Western culture. So first contact, as soon as you do one thing, you're doing more than one thing. But Hardin's law has been taken in lots of other areas. Um, We know it in physics, you can never just do one thing. We know it in medicine. If you're given a drug to treat a condition, you're doing other things as well. Sometimes when you take antibiotics, they kill not only the bug that they're designed to kill, they kill all other bugs as well. Really good ones. Is that right, Michelle? Yeah, I don't want to lead anybody up the garden path, but you know, you could never just do one thing. Life is much more complicated and as we know, interconnected. 
So there's this kind of instruction. You don't know how complicated this is going to be. It's not about you, so take it easy. Sit quietly and wait to see what happens. And then as if to emphasise this, Jesus then tells another really strange story or gives an extraordinary piece of advice. And the piece of advice he gives is don't live in the normal way. By that I mean that we don't live in the culture that Jesus' people and his people lived in, which was a culture based on uh, honour and shame and on patronage. It's a culture where there was an intricate web of relationships. Everybody knew where they fitted. In order to make the, the culture work, I would need to know who I owe allegiance to. Because that person, or persons that I owe allegiance to, they owe support to me. That's how I can live. That's how I can access the world. Uh, people would know that my patron is X, and therefore I have a certain standing in the community. Because I'm a good client of that patron. And in equally so, I would be the patron to someone else. Who, they would be known in the world as my client. And we could work together. And that's how we get things done. This isn't a culture based on money. It's not a culture based on economic laws. It's what we're used to. It's a culture based on that level of kind of interaction and trust. So the question, if I come to do some kind of negotiation with you, isn't who am I? It's who am I related to in, in the order of, of patronage? If I'm known to be the client of a worthy patron, then I've gotten some of that person's worthiness and I can be trusted. So whenever they had meals together, it was just like the wedding feast, it was a combination of the, politi the political situation, who do I need to invite so that I'm not upsetting anyone and so that I'm progressing uh, my life by being in touch with the right pe people who do I not need to invite well that's fairly obvious don't invite anybody that can't do me any good, so the poor the crippled they can't do me any good so I don't invite them. In fact, there, there's quite a lot of instruction. There's an um, early instruction in one of the Greek household manuals that just says this quite clearly. It's obvious to you that you wouldn't do this because what would be the point? There's, a, there's quite a few of these kinds of illustrations. So, so the, the people that Jesus is talking to would have been well aware of the, the normal way you do things. And where you place people when they come is really important too. And all of that is negotiated all the time. The closest thing for us would be Jesus saying to us something, and this is, this is about as good as I can think of it. I've been thinking about this all week because if we just see it as a story about who you invite to tea, we've missed it completely because it's a story about how the whole of culture is built in, in, in one intricate web. It would be a little bit like Jesus saying to us, if he were here now talking, saying, next time you go out somewhere and engage in the world, don't take or use money. We'd be, well, how? How the heck am I going to do that? I can't even get a feed without money. I can't get on the bus without money. I, the, my whole, everything we've got is money. In fact, it's one of the first things that I check when I go out in the morning, have I got my wallet on me? And have I got my credit cards because half the time I haven't got any cash? 
that it would, it would never occur to me not to check that I had my wallet with me. And Jesus is saying something that profound that would have been so bizarre to hear. Are you saying that we shouldn't do what we always do? We shouldn't engage in our culture the way we've always done it. How can a person live? If I start inviting the poor and the blind and the crippled, the people who in, in, our, in that culture were seen as somehow having the mark of evil on them, because of what was wrong with them. They had done something in either that life or in some parts of Jesus' culture was, was the belief, as it is in some parts of our world, that there were past lives and that past life had some impact on this one and that's why you're poor or you're crippled or you're hurting in some way. Are you saying that I should invite those people, ignore the people that make my life work, it just, it's not gonna make, life would just collapse immediately. So not only don't invite the people that make life work, but actively invite the people who can guarantee you to screw the life that you understand completely up. Whatever Jesus is on about, he's been on about it a lot in Luke's Gospel. It's often described as the upside-down Gospel. This is the Gospel where Jesus says, you lose your life in order to save it, This is the gospel where Jesus says the first are going to become the last and the last are going to become the first. This is the gospel where Jesus says the humble are going to be exalted and the exalted are going to be humbled. This is the gospel where right at the beginning when the angels, the messengers of God, announce the coming of God into the world in the birth of Jesus, they announce it to a bunch of shepherds. The lowest of the low in the working classes. This is an upside down gospel. Whatever Jesus is on about, he's wanting to tell us that what the way we normally see the world, we ought to rethink it. What if Jesus is asking us to abandon our thinking about how we know the world works? So I said before, it's a lot more complicated than we think it is. It's a lot more interconnected than we're willing to give it credit for. What if Jesus is, is, is being hyperbolic? What if he is, is thinking, what is, the, what is the, the thing that I can use to upset people's thinking the most? And as I said, one of the things he might have said if he was trying to say this here now would be to say to us, forget money. Forget income, forget expenditure, forget a bank account, forget insurance, forget paying your electricity bill. Just forget it. It sounds so bizarre, but it's a way of inviting us to think differently. And don't worry about the results. Because at the end of time, in the story as Richard read, at the end of time, it will all come good. There will be a a kind of a a payment. Things will work out. Don't worry about how it's going to turn out. There's two things that have been in the news this week that came into my mind as I was thinking about this that were like that, where people had thought a bit differently. We don't know how either of them are going to turn out. But it's upset the way of thinking. The first is um, the story of the Tamil family from the small community in Queensland who've lost their last appeal to stay in Australia uh, as asylum seekers and refugees. 
And you may have seen in the news that they were put on a plane. Um, the, the children and the parents were separated. These are tiny children. Separated, put on a plane. But in the last minute, they landed in Darwin and a federal court judge put an injunction until Wednesday of this week based on the fact that the youngest child's assessment as a refugee hadn't been processed. So she hadn't been given the opportunity to claim refugee status and to have that assessed. And she's two, so um, she hasn't done that herself. And so with that tiny sliver of an injunction, uh, and that was done because of the work of the small community in, in which these people had been living for the last two or three years, who up in arms about the fact that people that they loved, who were stitched into their community, have been dragged, literally dragged out of their beds in the middle of the night and taken to a, a, a holding cell in Melbourne, then shipped to Darwin, now shipped to Christmas Island. Your tax dollars at work, eh? But this small community have done this and we don't know how it's going to turn out. But they've rethought the way things should be done. And the other one um, is the story about Bernard Collery, the, the uh, lawyer and the person known as Witness K, who a couple of years ago um, revealed the fact that Austra the Australian government had illegally bugged the Prime Minister's office in Timor-Leste during the negotiations about where the boundary should be drawn on the, the Timorese Australian oil wells in the Timor Sea. We bugged the Prime Minister's office in order to get an advantage in these negotiations. And we got such an advantage that we were able to negotiate, we, one of the richest nations on earth, against Timor-Leste, one of the poorest nations on earth, a 50-50 split against all the international boundaries. We forced them to see the international boundaries as where they, where they were that would give us 50% of the oil revenue. But Witness K revealed this to the world. Timor Leste were able to take their case uh, to the uh, International Court of Justice and we had to renegotiate that from Australia's point of view and now it's 70-30 in Timor Leste's favour. But Bernard Collery, who is Witness K's lawyer, are both being charged by the Australian government for um, revealing official secrets. Nobody who did the bugging, by the way, has been charged. Nobody who, who literally broke the law without any shadow of a doubt. But we've charged these two men. And they don't know what's going to happen. It's working its way through the court at the moment. But it's another instance where people have decided, Witness K decided, that this couldn't stand. He was going to rethink the way the world should be and upend it just slightly. The upside-down world of Luke's Gospel. I have no idea whether he's ever read Luke's Gospel because we don't know who he is. But he's upside-down the world just a little bit. And we don't know the results of it. We know the results for Timor-Leste. It's a good result. They've now got 70% of this oil field. One of the poorest nations on earth now earning something closer to what they should earn out of this oil and gas exploration. And we a little less as this should be what we should do because we're such a wealthy nation. But we don't know what will happen to Witness K and Bernard Collery. But however it turns out, they've rethought the world, reimagined 
the way things could be. And I think that's what Jesus is asking us to do in this story. This outrageous story. Don't invite the people you're supposed to invite. Invite the people you're specifically told not to invite and see what happens. Which kind of gives me a moment of relief. That sense that I've tried most of my life to be relatively honest and relatively decent, at least in public. I've managed to get by without breaking too many laws too much of the time. And I've been a relatively law-abiding Australian citizen. But I'm being invited in this story to rethink my life to reimagine what it would mean for me to be a person who lives in an upside-down world where the most important things are the things that we see as the least important. And it, to use ordinary language, it kind of messes with your head about what that could lead us to. But I think, at least in part, that was Jesus' hope for this story. And we can only pray that the work that is being done on behalf of the, of the Tamil family and the work that is being done on behalf of Witness Kay and Bernard Corey might turn out to be a benefit to us all and to them. That will be my prayer anyway.